It's, you know, very intimidating, very anxiety driving, very fear driving. And all of these things add up to where when we were looking at our study of patients that were just using um, trainer devices in a calm, you know, clinical setting, 15% of these individuals refused to actually try and perform an injection. Welcome to Tough Tech Today with Mayan and Miller. This is the premier show featuring trailblazers who are building technologies today to solve tomorrow's toughest challenges. Welcome to Tough Tech Today. Today we have a special guest, Connor Cullinane. Connor is the CEO of Pirouette Medical, a company that is making a revolutionary new auto-injector device. Hi, Connor. Welcome to the show. Hey, Forrest. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, it's great to, to see both of you and uh, get to share a little bit about my uh, journey. So Pirouette Medical, what kind of company is that? Do you make some sort of uh, medical uh, ballet slippers or what is, <laughs> what, what is your company about and why did you pick that name? Yeah, so that's a great question and one we, we often get. Uh, I think a lot of people are, are always intrigued by the name. We found it to be uh, very helpful, but uh, as far as its origins um, and, and what the company does, we are uh, basically a medical device manufacturer um, and, and design company. So we found a need in, in the medical space. We developed a device to meet that need, and uh, we're currently taking that, that uh, design uh, to practice manufacturing and then through FDA approval uh, and, and onto the market. So that's sort of the overall process of, of really what we're, we're set out to do as a company and why Pirouette Medical. Um, it, it, it is based on sort of the, the actual dance move a little bit. So what, you know, when you do a pirouette, it's a, it's a revolution, it's a spin. And so we like to play on that um, a little bit because of the the design of our device, as well as uh, because of, of the connotation that it has with that revolution. And so we saw what we were doing as very different than what had been done before. And so rather than saying, you know, we're, we're revolutionizing that space, we like to say that we're making a pirouette in that space. And um, so so I really like the name and. And we've uh, we've we've definitely um, had a great time, sort of leading with that, and and continuing to keep that thought process. You know, as we look at different technologies or different applications of our technology, and and really focus on continuing to make that revolution or that pirouette in uh, in the in the medical technology space. I, I think that's a that's a thank you for explaining that. That's a, a nice sort of tie in in terms of the way that your the, the the way the device works and the the so the philosophy that you have for for the company. For our our listeners and our viewers, could you um, elaborate on sort of the problem area that you had identified? You mentioned that you found sort of this opportunity in the medical space. Could you um, elaborate on what that is? Why it's important? Why we should care? Yeah, you bet. So. Um it was at a period of time when I was uh, completing my PhD and essentially uh, came across a couple of news articles over a very short period of time. So, um, it, you know, one day I basically read an article about a child who was exposed to a, li um, a life-threatening allergen. Uh, I think the, the first article I had read was a uh, exposure to a peanut at a school cafeteria, the child unfortunately didn't receive a life-saving dose of epinephrine in time and and unfortunately passed away and so it's a very sad story and you know something that popped up and and you know being my so my uh phd focus was medical engineering and medical physics and so you know it was sort of a space i was already really interested in and you know it, it definitely struck a chord and you know uh couple of days go by and I all of a sudden see another article and it's another child who was exposed to an allergen, in this case a bee sting, out playing in a field at a park and um, didn't receive their life-saving dose of epinephrine in time and unfortunately passed away. And, you know, one of those articles, you, you see that and it's, you know, whoa, you know, something, something is, is wrong here. And then you see two of those 
in a matter of, of days, you know, I, this was all within a week. And it's like, okay, let's, let's take a look here and see what's actually going on. You know, it's, it's tough to hear it, uh, that, that that's actually still happening. Um, and so we started to dive into that, that aspect of, uh, a medical device that really didn't seem to be solving the problem that it was really there to solve. And, you know, our thought process was, well, well, why, why didn't these children receive their life-saving dose in time? You know, it's, it's, it's very evident, you know, how they became exposed to an allergen. You know, you're never going to be able to escape those um, 100%. You know, you and your family and your parents or whoever can do everything they can to protect you from exposure. But oftentimes those exposures happen at a time when, you know, you have, you have no idea and no expectation. And so our initial thought process was, well, Hey, this is a, this is a portability issue. Um, and so we looked at existing injection devices and we said, they're too big, they're too bulky. They're too hard for, you know, a 12 year old kid to carry around and try and remember it when they go anywhere. And that's, that's sort of where we started. Is injection the only way to, to mitigate these effects once the allergies occurs? The reaction. So once once the allergy occurs, the the current emergency treatment is an intramuscular injection of epinephrine, and there are other treatments on the horizon. And you know there are other companies looking at ways in which um, you know we can have other emergency treatments that could potentially mitigate these these issues. But currently, that's the that's the only way we have to to save a life in this in this scenario. And you know you you hope that when you're exposed, you're, you don't have a severe enough allergic reaction that there's going to be a life-threatening issue. But unfortunately, that's not always the case for everybody. And oftentimes, the individuals who have these, um, uh, these reactions that are life-threatening, those, those uh, situations are extremely r- rapid as well. So, um, you know, after exposure, some of these individuals can actually pass away within five minutes if they don't receive that abortive life-saving dose in time. So it's it's extremely scary, and you and you can start to think about well, what needs to happen during that period? You know, if let's say you've got your device in a backpack or it's in the glove box of your car or wherever it is, right? You first have to find the device, then you have to get it to the the individual that needs it. So if it's yourself, you know, you've got to find it and and then be able to use it on yourself. If it's a parent with a child. They need to be able to dig through that backpack and grab it or, you know, run back to the car and grab it, bring it back to that child and then use it. And five minutes is not a long time. Right. And, and you know, it's it's a very scary scenario. And, and one of the big things that we really started to figure out as we went out and talked to patients and potential you know users who rely on these devices to save their life is, you know, a huge part of their life is just filled with constant fear. Because if you're allergic to a bee sting, or if you're allergic to a peanut, you don't know when you're going to come into contact with one of these things. And so, you know, you could be out mowing the lawn. You know, I have um, a really good friend who who is severely allergic to bee stings, life th- in one of these life-threatening manners, just like we were talking about. And he has been out mowing the lawn before, was stung by a bee. And, uh, and barely survived. And, you know, this is an individual who actually did perform an injection on himself, uh, actually carries, currently carries an EpiPen and carries that EpiPen on a holster on his, um, on his, uh, uh, belt. And so, you know, if, if you're thinking about, you know, this is an adult, right? And they're, they're constantly in fear of a situation where they might need a life saving dose so much to the, you know, to the extent that they need this on their belt, you know, no matter what they're doing, wherever they go outside, right? Because a beak, you know, could get them at any point. And then you think, all right, well, you know, is a child going to have that same discipline to make sure they have that? And, and that's where it starts to get really scary and sort of dangerous as you, you look across, not everybody has that discipline. And he, he, if he didn't have it with him that close, it, it would have been fatal. So it's, it's extremely scary for these individuals. This problem has been around then since, I, guess, I mean, since, since humans have had, had um, severe allergies. Um, and so 
What then gap did you see to be able to make a one and novel medical device for this patents, what granted and pending and then yep. and wrapping a company around it? Because that's a whole different thing of here's a problem, but then going down the path of finding a way to be reimbursed for this kind of um, medical engineering that you're doing. Exactly. Yeah. So when we started to to initially look at this um, this landscape and the current devices that were there, you know, you, you can kind of trace it back all the way to, you know, when injection started and, you know, the first types of devices, which were really syringe like, and then you kind of have the full blown syringe, safety syringes, those sorts of things. And they developed, you know, over time to the point where, you know, providing an intramuscular injection is something routine can easily be done, but this is really healthcare provider dependent, right? You're, you're, you're receiving an injection by somebody who has the training to provide that injection, right? You're dealing with a needle, you're dealing with a syringe, you're dealing with the drug. You have to get all three of those components together. You have to get it, you have to get the drug at the correct volume, the correct dose, right? And then all of that has to happen in one of these, you know, high stress blood pumping environments where, you know, you, you, somebody's life is on the line. And so you come from that that sort of uh, preliminary world where it really works great for, you know, a lot of the early injections, but in an emergency use scenario, it really wasn't cutting it. And so then um, in the 70s, there, the, uh, there was the development of the auto injector. And so, you know, this essentially was the automation of the use of a syringe. So that's sort of kind of how this technology came to be, right? You know, you you have all this fear and this um, anxiety associated with overcoming the use of existing technology. That was such a barrier that at home delivery of these injections was, was especially on a mass scale, you know, at what we're talking about today of 10 million devices a year or more, you know, is, was is prohibitive. Right. And so then, you know, the auto injector came around and it was essentially, like I said, that automation of that injection and, you know, you really can think of those technologies as just that. You basically have inside of those technologies the needle, the glass vial or syringe that's actually holding the drug, you know, a plunger, the stem. And when I say that's automated, it's basically got has a big spring that sits on top. And when you try to perform, when you go to perform the injection, you're basically releasing that spring. The spring pushes that needle down. It pushes the plunger down, forces the drug out of the needle. And you're basically, you know, automating a syringe, right? So it's a, it's, that's sort of how that technology kind of, um, in a, in a, in a very, um, iterative way came to be, right? It was trying to, trying to take that injection out of the healthcare provider's hands and place it into the, um, into the patient's hands that way at a time when, you know, you're, you're, you're in that life-threatening scenario, you, you try and remove as much guessing as possible. Well, what we found out was, you know, even though these technologies are somewhat solving that problem, they're not completely solving that problem. So, so. as you mentioned, yeah. it's difficult for, for kids to use the current system. Yep. And yep. so that's what that is that the big pain point that you've been addressing is making this so like 10 year olds can do a self administered auto injection. Yeah. So our thought process is sort of, uh, you know, uh, basically three pillars. So we think about affordability, portability and usability. So if I take you through all three of those, it really describes sort of what the current issues are and and why we saw a space in that market for what we developed. So on the affordability side, you know, there has been a lot of talk, especially in this epinephrine space about the increase in price, uh, especially over time in the United States where, uh, you know, the, the EpiPen got to a $610 price tag for a two pack, right? So you, you, yeah, exactly. So you have these devices, which are essentially springs, plastic, and, what is a, you know, a 15 cent syringe. It's like, it's like the cost with of a the drug in there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know, you're in your pocket. <laughs> exactly. And I'm, and I mean, so this is a, um, it's still a price that most people aren't paying with insurance and things like that, but you know, your out of pocket prices are still just extraordinarily high. And, and one of the things that's, 
you know, interesting there from the affordability side is even if your insurance does cover um, one of these epinephrine auto injectors, oftentimes families want more than what they're capable of purchasing on on their health plan. And so, you know, you have individuals that, uh, you know, want to have one at their neighbor's house, want to have one at school, want to have one in their car, right? And so you're left with buying them on your own at a, at a cash price. And, you know, there are ways to get coupons and discounts and things like that. But, you know, it's, it's, um, it's very difficult for these families to have to focus on that. And, and then it becomes a yearly purchase, right? It's, you know, my kid's going back to school. I need to buy another one of these, you know, and throw out all of the ones that we didn't use last year. Right. So why, why, it, why do you have to throw them out? Yeah. So that, that's something that, uh, is sort of another wrinkle to, um, sort of, big issues that that current patients have with with devices and that's on the um uh the actual shelf life of the device so epinephrine is a pretty finicky drug it's susceptible to degradation in a number of ways uh one of those is temperature excursion so if it's not at room temperature if it gets too hot or it gets too cold the efficacy of the drug can actually go down um if it's exposed to oxygen over time you know, you've got that plunger and the glass and the needle. And if any of those seal off points around the drug during your, you know, year of storage have leakage of oxygen, um, then, then the efficacy of the drug will, will degrade over time. And so, you know, if you look at an EpiPen today, uh, there's actually a window on there where you can look in and you're, you're, you're actually supposed to inspect the drug or be able to inspect the drug prior to performing an injection. And what you're looking for while, is while you're like suffocating and stuff, you're supposed to it, like exactly, exactly. It's still and, good. I mean, what? you know, the the hope is that you have patients who will routinely uh, look at their device, you know, take it out and say, okay, you know, it's still good. Let me look at the expiration date. Let me look at the drug. But we all know that's that's by and large probably not happening. And so you know, and then do you expect a patient to be looking at the the drug for clarity and color right before they're performing an injection to save their own life or somebody else's life in a five minute, you know, maybe five minute window? Probably not, right? And so, um, so what happens is it just becomes a cycle and you say, you know, it's going to last me, let's say this year, I'll throw them out, I'll get a new one, right? And then you, you start facing that affordability piece as well. And so, you know, I, I broke it up into those three pillars because we tried to think about the patient experience. That's really what Pirouette is all about. You know, what what issues does the patient have and how can we resolve those? And so, you know, it goes all the way from procurement on this, affordab on this affordability side to the portability piece. You know, how can they bring it? How can we make it so that it's easy for them to bring it wherever they go? to the usability side when it, when it comes right down to the final, you know, okay, this is it. I need to perform an injection. How do we make that easier as well? So we talked about the affordability side, a little bit about the, um, the, the shelf life and, you know, the actual stability of the drug and, and how that, that actually plays into more of the affordability piece as well. And, you know, if that can be extended, then that's helpful. Um, when we go to the portability piece, that's actually where we've, we first focused. Uh, it was, you know, kind of why we started Pirouette. It was a it was a thought process on, all right, the existing devices today are fairly bulky. Most uh, individuals that are prescribed these devices are told, hey, carry two, especially for reliability purposes. When you're when you're talking about a device that may malfunction, or if the efficacy of that drug has reduced, it may not actually save your life. So carry two. So if you inject that first one and it doesn't work, go ahead and inject a second, right? And so you think about one of these devices, which is about six inches tall. It's a long, you know, one inch wide um, pen shaped device. And then there's kind of this S clip that will pair two of those devices together. And then you're supposed to stick that somewhere, right? And, and be able to take that with you wherever you go. And I told, I gave you the anecdote of my friend who... Go ahead. I want to say one thing is that um, as you describe this, you make it sound like it's it's like it's obvious that this is something that could be changed. But I'm sure yeah. that when you when if we backtrace to to the, the past you, 
it, uh, you mentioned that there's a, uh, the patient sort of centered, um, like design process, like human, human yep. factors engineering. And that's something I think, um, would be really interesting to understand is the process. How did you start to, you and your, your colleagues figure out that this is a problem that needs solved? Cause, yeah. uh, cause that's, that's one thing is seeing the problem and, and one is like the discovery of that and then how to figure out a, a decent solution, or in this case, a really, um, clever way of addressing those human-centered challenges. Oh, you bet. Yeah. So we we did it in two ways. So essentially, we started with what do we think the problem is based on our understanding of the um, of the current landscape, the, the current devices, just sort of looking there. And, and like I said, we started with portability. We're like, these things are huge and bulky. You know, how could anyone carry them around? And so we're, we basically thought, all right, how can we make an injector smaller? Um, but, you know, your question is a little bit bigger than that. And it's it's very interesting as well, because um, you start to think about, well, you know, I was I was telling you guys how these were around in the 70s. Right. So now it's, you know, 2017, back, which is sort of the time I'm referencing. We started to talk about this portability issue and it's like, all right, well, ha- you know. Obviously, there's an issue with, you know, making these devices smaller. How come nobody's done it? And there there's quite a quite a bit that goes into that. Um, some of it is really this whole sort of iteration type design where you've got something that's working and it's like, how do we make it a little bit better? You know, these guys have an auto injector. Let's make an auto injector. And then if you start to compare all these auto injectors to each other right there, they look the same, they feel the same, they sort of work the same, they have the same general shape. Um, and, and a lot of that came from, well, it's working, you know, to some extent, we, with the EpiPen, for example, by 2016, they had captured, you know, over 97% of the market with something that was, you know, essentially um, not the perfect solution, but a solution, right? And so why change that? And so, um, so there's there's a little bit of that. And then there's a little bit of iteration. Um, I mean, it seems like iteration wouldn't be a way to get to to get on the path toward having like a, a really innovative solution, though. Or do you think that iteration exactly. is absolutely um, sort of a prerequisite activity that could lead to a really kind of game changing um, medical device translational engineering? No, I think it was I think it was really a, an economical decision of, you know, how much how much R&D do we want to put into this when we're already capturing a huge percentage of the markets and it's already showing it work. And I think you're right. You know, iterations are, are great. But at the end of the day, if you want to have a giant leap in this sort of change in technology or, you know, as we describe it, this pirouette in technology, you kind of have to start with a blank slate, which is what we did. And we and to go back to sort of that human centric design that you were referring to, we love that. That's what we focused on from the very the very beginning. And, and I mentioned earlier, we sort of did that in two ways. So the two ways we did that were the first was by uh, performing patient surveys. So we literally tried to contact as many patients as possible who rely on these devices, have who have used all the various types of existing epinephrine auto injectors. And we basically performed a thousand of these where we, we, we developed a survey, we, we went out, we tried to get them completed and we said, you know, what device do you use? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? You know, obviously it was uh, a lot more questions than that, but that was essentially the, the basis of what we were looking for, right? You know, what are your issues with existing devices? And, and then can we take that information and build that into our design requirements and then start with a clean slate and say, how do we solve this problem? Not how do we make a little bit better a device than this one that exists already? So, mm. so we did that. And then we also performed, we, we brought a uh, advisor on board who's a board certified allergist who, you know, prescribes these epinephrine auto injectors on a, on a daily basis. And he often spends a lot of time training patients on how to use the device uh, he works with children, trains them on how to use it, trains their parents on how to use it. And so he sees a lot of the pitfalls with existing devices. What do they do wrong with it? And so um, we worked with him to conduct sort of a small study where he was basically handing a trainer device of the existing technology to these patients saying, OK, go ahead and perform the injection and then monitoring, you know, OK, if they if this was a real device, they would have done it right. 
or they would have done it wrong or they would have done it, you know, if they did it wrong, here's what would have went wrong. And so two of the things that we've, so I, I guess we found a lot of information that we really hadn't thought about. I mentioned we were sort of really focused on this portability piece, making the device smaller, but we built out so much more than that when we really talked to these patients and found out, you know, everything that they were, they were really thinking about. And I kind of alluded it, alluded to this earlier, but really what we discovered was along that entire pipeline from procurement to maintenance. And by maintenance, I mean, bringing the device, where are you maintaining it, wherever you go. And then actual administration of that, of that injection. Along that entire process, there was essentially this overarching, what we describe as fear and anxiety. So patients were worried about how they're going to pay for it, how they're going to procure it. They were worried about how do I bring this with me wherever I go? What happens if I, if I come in contact with a, with an allergen like a bee sting and I don't have it? You know, what, it, what, it, what are the options for me there? And then, I'm super scared to use this device. And that was where we really, it really started to dawn on us that like, okay, you may have removed the healthcare provider, but you really haven't made this mainstream so easy to use that you've removed that anxiety and fear. And there still is quite a hurdle that these patients have to overcome to go through the process of performing an injection. And even if they overcome that hurdle, we see problems that that arise even at that stage and so from that usability piece we really focused on two um, injury mechanisms that can occur during that process so one of them is an accidental injection where the device is used upside down and they can actually get a needle into their thumb for example we, we also call that the lost dose hazard because you know you're not necessarily going to be causing much health risk. You, you do have a lot of vasoconstriction because of the epinephrine drug that will happen in that location. And you do have to oftentimes treat that thumb or other finger or other digit that gets that injection. But at the end of the day, what the, what the scary piece is there is if you're, let's say a dad and you're injecting your child, you know, who just got stung by a bee, um, and you swing this thing and, and you've got your injection into your thumb and we call that the lost dose hazard because now that child doesn't receive a, a dose and they still are in a life-threatening scenario, right? So that's very scary. Um, and now you've basically have two patients instead of one. And the other mechanism we looked at, the injury mechanism we looked at was lacerations, which is where you basically have these tall, skinny injection devices and you try and perform an injection, and it's very hard to control the position of that injection. So if I if I show you, you know, my pencil here, right? This is typically how you're holding a pen injector, right? And so you're basically making this motion, it's contacting the injection surface, and the needle is then then going down into the tissue. But you can see where my hand is several inches away from the injection site, and it's you have very poor control over the uh, actual needle. And what happens is uh, oftentimes that injection system can slide and you're dragging a needle through tissue causing a laceration. And what we often see is a, a V-shaped laceration where the first cut happens and you try and correct for it and you actually cut in the other direction. And so it's, it's you know, very intimidating, very anxiety driving, very fear driving. And all of these things add up to where when we were looking at our study of patients that were just using... Um, trainer devices in a calm, you know, clinical setting, 15% of these individuals refused to actually try and perform an injection out of fear and anxiety alone. And this is something with, we never with thought With a trainer device? With a trainer device. So there's no needle, no drug. And 15% of people said, heck no, I'm not doing it. It's too scary. We actually had reports from that study where there were children running out of the room because they didn't want to receive an injection. And, you know, if you're, if you're performing an injection on yourself, it's often a little bit easier to maintain control over the injection device because you kind of know where your leg is going and what it's doing. But if you're trying to perform an injection on a child who's so scared that they're ready to run out of the room, imagine trying to swing this thing onto their leg and hold it steady with your hand several inches away from that injection site while mm -hmm. a child is pulling their leg away. Right. Yeah. It's it's almost impossible. And so you, you see research articles now that actually talk about 
you know, hey, if you're going to perform an injection on a child, you know, with one of these devices, you're basically putting them into a, you know, WWE wrestling move in order to lock all motion and then try and perform that injection. It's just, you know, as we sort of see it, not an ideal solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's yeah, really... This, this is a yeah. great characterization of the of the the problem and what I think a lot of people even today experience. But yeah. now you have, do, do you have a... I do have like a show and tell um, or, or like what what you have yeah. because it's are fascinating and it does not look like um, a needle or anything like that. It's completely different. It's like a hockey puck. Exactly. So I have one here and uh, as I show it, you know, the Can you thing demonstrate that it on yourself. I can't demonstrate it today. Uh, the version I have is a um, is basically a uh, show device for for giving pitches and talks and things like that. Uh, and unfortunately, right now with us working remote, the devices that we have that are currently functioning are actually at my uh, CTO's office, uh, and I wasn't able to get one in time for this uh, for this demonstration. But he, so we have reduced these to practice. Uh, we have the devices, you know, delivering the drug with the needle extending and. Um, but unfortunately those, those fully functioning, uh, versions of the device are currently at, uh, at, at his office. So, uh, but I do have the device that will show you that process. Um, and, and I'll walk you through, you know, how that, how that would work. And so to give you sort of that high level view again, you know, we thought about affordability, portability, usability, and as we talk to the patients and perform these studies, the things that we thought about were, um, the patient anxiety and, and what drives that anxiety, all of those pain points that built up towards that overall patient anxiety and how can we change that total patient experience? So, you know, you're exactly right. Our device doesn't look anything like the existing technologies. It's, uh, as we describe it, sort of a low profile disc. You mentioned a hockey puck. We used to call it a hockey puck all the time, but what happens is, People think of, you know, the size of a hockey puck and they're, you know, it starts to grow in their mind about how big it is. And, you know, you, if you see it in my hand, it's it's not as big as a hockey puck. It's a little bit smaller. Um, but we tried to find a happy medium as well, because you're going to have people who, you know, need to manipulate this device at the end of the day. You obviously want it to be as portable as possible. Throw it in your pocket, take it wherever you go. But at the end of the day, you know, somebody needs to operate the device use it to administer an injection and to do that, you know, it has to be at least, you know, a certain size to, to, to manipulate the, the surfaces. So, um, the way it works, it's like like a can of tobacco, you know, just put it in your back pocket. Yeah, exactly. It's probably not a way to sell it to the kids. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of, of size and shape, it's very similar. Um, but yeah, you know, it's in that regard, I think talks, you know, to the points of, of portability, um, in terms of usability, we tried to reduce the process to, you know, what we saw as low barrier steps as well as highly controllable steps. So that at no point were we driving anxiety for the patient. And mm-hmm. our whole thought process is if, if somebody walks by who's never seen our device before, they can pick it up, read the uh, visual instructions on the top. So we have the graphics that represent those three steps. Mm-hmm. And say, oh, that's easy. I can I can do that, and I can save this person's life. You know, with the, with their device mm-hmm. in their pocket, right? So that was the that was really the push on the usability side. Um, so what you actually do is, and and the compare and contrast piece. We basically took those tall, skinny devices and went to a short, flatter device, right? So it it kind of will remind you more of a of a patch pump type injection system but the big difference is rather than like a subcutaneous injection we're still fully intramuscular so mm-hmm. even though our device is low profile and much closer to the injection site mm-hmm. we're still hitting that intramuscular injection depth um and which you know brings us back to that direct comparison with the um with the auto injectors of today right so mm-hmm. So essentially the three easy steps that we go through are twist and remove this safety plate. So there's a red safety plate on the bottom. After you twist and remove the red safety plate, you place the injector down on your injection site. In the case of epinephrine, we're talking about um, the vastus lateralis. So your sort of top outer thigh. 
just so you guys can see it, I'll sort of demonstrate it on the deltoid intramuscular location. But essentially, you would remove that safety plate, and then you're going to place the injector onto wherever your injection site is. For you guys, I'll, I'll use my deltoid to demonstrate the injection. Um, so basically, you twist and remove the safety plate on the bottom. Uh, it's, a, it's a very easy twist motion. There's a, there's a lot of uh, knurling and ridges on the device and places for your fingers to hold. Once you once you do that and open the device, uh, it's already correctly oriented in your hand for placement on the injection site. So you would just place it, uh, and we actually say use the term apply it, uh, apply it to the injection site. And one of the unique characteristics of our device in comparison to uh, the other injection systems is we have this large uh, uh, flat surface area that comes into contact with that injection site, and so. What we did there is we actually covered that injection site with a um, with an adhesive. So mm. we're helping hold that device on location in a number of ways. One is that form factor being low profile and close to the injection site. You know, we talked about having your hand several inches off the injection site before. Now you can sort of see, you barely can even see the device, right? If I move my fingers, you know, there it is. But mm -hmm. if I place my hand on the device to perform an injection, you barely see it, you know, and, and now my hand is basically flat and pushing up against the injection site. I can actually grab onto my arm and pin that device in between. And at this stage, you simply push down. So it's oh, three wow. easy steps. Remove the safety cover, apply that device onto your injection location and push down. Just and like one of the really yeah. unique things. Yeah. So we, we kind of, uh, you know, I, we don't want to get in any copyright trouble, but it's basically like pushing a big easy button, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, we, we really describe it as trying to reduce the administration of performing an injection, the administration of injection to as easy as pushing a button. And, and really that's mm -hmm. what, you know, the whole process was driving towards by reducing that anxiety, making it so simple. And one of the unique things is, is when I, when I push down to perform the injection, that force that I'm pushing down with is not actually pushing the needle into the tissue. It's not forcing the drug out of the device. It's simply activating the device. So no matter how fast you push down, how slow you push down, how hard you push, all you have to do is bottom out that device. Then when you, when you push that button down, the device is going to perform the injection for you with a tuned amount of force every time the needle is going to extend to the same length to get to that, that same intramuscular depth the same amount of drug is going to be delivered, right? So all the guesswork is gone. All you've got to do is push down and it does everything else. After you're, you let go of that device, it actually pops back up to its height before you push the big button and it locks out completely. And three flags appear circumferentially around the device uh, with a big red flag with white letters saying used. One of the things we wanted to avoid is the issue that we learned about when talking to patients where devices that they have previously used and then put on the ground, someone will come by and have no idea that that device has already been used and try and use it again. Mm -hmm. So this device locks out. You can never push it down again. You never see the needle before. You never see the needle after, which also removes anxiety. It's mm -hmm. a much less assuming shape. So, you know, one of yeah. the things we heard from patients as well was, you know, the whole thing looks like a needle to me. It's super scary. So we tried to remove that as well. And it all kind of, you know, was able to build together into, you know, the device was smaller to begin with. It was lower profile that had benefits for portability that had benefits for usability. And then at the end of the day, we call it an elegant design because it uses as many standard off the shelves um, technologies in the pharma industry that are already used today. Uh, we tried to streamline that entire process. We tried to streamline the manufacturing so, you know, you have this improved functionality, but you don't have big cost drivers behind that. So you're sure. in terms of your cost of goods, you're basically the same as other injection technologies, but you have this leap in functionality. So, that, so that, that's why we call it a, sort of an elegant design awesome. as well. This is really clever engineering, though, as, as I mean, we've got <laughs> engineers in the room here. Uh, we know that to build something cool and an elegant design, there's, there's a, a satisfaction in that. But that's also not the only battle that you would have to be able to translate this to be able to work in the market to get it like if I or a loved one could benefit from this kind of device. 
yeah. can I get it now? And if not, what's the, what's the pathway that you're pursuing to be able to get it to people who need this? And that's always something that, uh, you know, is, is always tough for us to hear because we'll talk to people who, you know, rely on these devices and they, you know, the question is, you know, when can I get it? And, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a long road for medical devices. And what we have here is a combination product. So it's a, you know, injection technology that we've paired with a specific drug and that has to go through regulatory approval. And when we're talking about here in the United States, that's FDA approval um, for our specific device to dive a little deeper there. Uh, we're talking about a, a sort of streamlined pathway, but it's still, um, you know, a, a very rigorous pathway and well, it should be, you know, it, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of time and a lot of money that goes into taking a device from reduced to practice to a point where you know it's safe and effective for consumption by by the the uh, the patient, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, we we we're not, um, you know, uh, I would say we're not against going through these steps. It's just that it is a process that takes a lot of time, and that's the hard part when we're talking to patients. We tell them, you know, mm-hmm. this is a great device; it's on the way, but you know, there's a lot we have to do between now and FDA approval and going to market and, and bringing you this device. Um, and so to give you a little bit of um, perspective on, on what has to happen is, so, you know, we, we talked to the patients, we performed our studies, we, we took all that information, we put it together and um, we set that into our, our we, we were able to convert that into design requirements. And then we go through our preliminary design, our detailed design. We go through a lot of iteration in that design based on putting some of those early concepts, early prototypes in the hands of the patient. So these are all things, pieces of the this pipeline that we've done. And then based on that information, we went back, changed the design to make it even easier. And that's how we got to these, you know, three super streamlined, easy to overcome steps. Um, and the form factor that we have today, not making it too small, but making it something people can actually, you know, work with and handle, especially if it's a patient that, you know, may have limited dexterity or whatever. So, you know, all these things that continue to come up and then we look, then we took every single component and we went to potential manufacturers and we said, Hey, you know, what would it cost to manufacture one of these? And how would you do it? What would it cost to manufacture a thousand, a million, 10 million, right? And you go through that process of what are the cost drivers and, you know, can we change or remove those major cost drivers while still maintaining the uh, reliability and functionality of our device? And so we did that on a component by component level. And then we went uh, and now we're going through that process on a larger scale, which is a, a sort of manufacturing and assembly scale where we're actually going through these process developments to understand, you know, okay, we can do this with one device, but can we do it with millions and millions of these as we would continue to scale this out for epinephrine or a future application? And so by doing that, you know, we, we continue to increase the elegancy of the device, you know, the, the reducing the cost on a per component basis, but also on an assembly basis. But from here, where we have to go after this, um, this stage that we're in right now, which is going through that process development for that large scale manufacturability, the next step is to go through um, basically a full litany of testing that is required by these regulatory agencies. And in our case, um, you know, we're talking about the FDA, for example. So, you know, there's certain tests that we have to perform, which are, um, you know, as we describe them, um, kind of into, in different buckets, but some of that is what we would describe as human factors, which you, which you sort of alluded to Jonathan earlier, which is, you know, okay, you know, you went and asked the patient what they wanted or what they didn't want. And then you set that into your design requirements and you built something. But how do we know it's really addressing what they what they were targeting? And so that piece of the testing is literally putting it in the hands of a user and saying, I'm not going to tell you how to use it. You go and use it and we're going to watch you. And basically it's the, you know, the classic one-way mirror, right? And you're, you're in a scenario, whether it's a school cafeteria or, or whatever, and that user is basically left to their own devices to, you know, either 
uh, have the device sink or float? You know, did it work they're, the way we thought left, it would work? They're left to your devices. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're left to our devices. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so that'll be a, a big and exciting step. And one of the reasons why we did a lot of um, sort of some of that iterative testing early on, because we wanted to know going into that, you know, hey, you know, we want to be pretty confident that this is going to be successful when we get far along in this in this venture. So, um, so that's a big chunk of the testing that has to uh, be performed, and all that data has to be collected um, and presented to the regulatory agency for for approval. And so, and and that's one piece of it. The another another piece is actual device performance testing. You know, does the device perform exactly the way you said it's going to perform, and does it perform that way over and over and over again? When we're talking about a a emergency device that's going to be used to save a life in those five minutes, there's a very high bar for reliability. And, mm-hmm. you know, you heard me mention before that a lot of these devices, they say, hey, carry two of them. If it doesn't work the first time or the FXC has dropped, you know, inject a second. We're talking about trying to have such high reliability that, you know, you could potentially just carry one. What uh, kind of number would that be? Like one in... The hundred thousand failure rate or what? Yeah. Um, so it would be a lot better than that. So we're talking about what we describe as five nines of reliability. So that's oh, wow. 99.999%. So to, to actually hit that, you know, you're talking about, you know, specific statistical methods in order to look at that sampling for your testing. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about very extreme reliability. So, you know, one of the things that you can already, if you start to think about that process of developing and manufacturing these devices, you could really already basically just remove humans from that process because you, you put somebody in there who's assembling one of these by hand, you're, you're going to have a hard time hitting uh, high reliability levels. And so, you know, this is, this is a, a computer automated process that's putting devices together, for example. So, to, so a robot has to assemble the entire device? Yeah, not only that, but um, you're going to be checking subsystems throughout that entire assembly process. So, you know, your your device is put together, um, you know, via complete automation. And at the same time, each of those steps are are verified. You know, whatever that that method is, you have to make sure that, okay, this one that we just put together was put together correctly. Right. And so you you basically have those in-process checks throughout that piece as well, which is, you know, it's a, it kind of gets back to something that's on the top of, of all of this, which is, is a funding piece, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it takes a lot of time to perform this testing. It takes a lot of time to, um, you know, go through putting that data, you know, into a format that needs to, that's easy to be reviewed, easy to be understood, easy to be seen. You know, you take a lot of time in the manufacturing process, you take a lot of time in the design process. All of it's a lot of time, but, you know, it's also a lot of money and a lot of upfront capital. The, you know, fully automated assembly lines aren't cheap. You know, in general, when you're talking about a combination product, um, the ballpark I like to throw around is, you know, $70 million in 10 years, right, to, to develop one of these types of devices. So it's, very, it's a very uphill battle. Um, we're us being a smaller, you know, more nimble company. We try to undershoot both of those. So, you know, do it faster and do it cheaper. And, you know, a lot of that relies on us as founders, you know, and, and employees to, you know, figure out ways in which we can do things ourselves rather than outsource. And one of the reasons why I love having a, a founding team that's made up of engineers um, you know, with, with great engineering backgrounds is, you know, we didn't have to outsource that early design process. We, we knew and understood human centric design. We knew and understood that combination of humans and system and, you know, where does our device lie in that process and how do we actually design each of these parts? How do we design the total system? How does it get put together? And, you know, if you outsource that, you're talking about a lot of time and a lot of capital that's required in addition. And if you can do it on your own, you save a lot of that and you can stay much smaller earlier on, uh, which we which we tried to do and remain capital efficient through that process. 
the does the then the relationship with um, Cavestro is that the help on say sort of manufacturing and and some of the, say the tactical aspects of the design like to the point of like figuring out which kind of plastic is useful that maybe you that your founding team of engineers may not have had known the certain types of polymer chemistry that would work for this metal grade medical grade kind of application like what why yeah. partner with a a large company like this or was that the only pathway available that's great a great question so uh one of the sets of testing that we didn't talk about beyond sort of that device performance testing is uh, looking at the materials that are actually in your device and making sure that those aren't going to irritate somebody's skin or affect, you know, effectively cause a, a reaction where we're trying to save a reaction, right? And so one of the things that we can do by working with one of these um, resin suppliers is basically say, okay, we need it to be medical grade from the beginning. And already that de-risks a huge portion of that downstream testing because that plastic material has already be shown has already been shown to uh, effectively pass that testing, and then by combining multiple types of that plastic material, we know that we're not introducing any materials into the device that are going to harm a potential patient. So we start there, but then your the exactly what you mentioned, which was you know, can we also rely on their expertise to say, okay, hey, we need a part that looks like this. Here's how we designed it. And here's the forces it needs to stand up to needs to be medical grade. Uh, what do you got? Right. And so they can come back and say, Hey, we've got these two resins that can withstand the huge forces that you're talking about, you know, and then fit all of the rest of your requirements. And that's, you know, I, I love the video you're alluding to because, uh, I, I'm not sure where I came up with that on the fly, but I said, you know, essentially what we're trying to do is pack a little punch into a, or a big punch into a little package, right? And that kind of goes back to what I had mentioned before with the existing devices being these big, tall, skinny devices that have these huge springs, and they're basically pushing a ton of force through to get to the intramuscular space. It's not easy to have, a, to have an automated system to deliver a needle that deep into the tissue and then get your drug to, to bolus through. And so, you know, we, we basically cut off this, this device above, you know, an inch off the surface, and we still need to get down to that depth. And so, you know, some of our, our parts that are smaller because we're in a little package need to withstand fairly large forces in order to do what we're asking them to do and reliability and reliably and not fail. Right. And so, that was sort of that relationship there. It's like, you know, we need some really good resins. What do you have? And and that was that. I think that's something really important. And for, for say the fans of the podcast, the YouTube channel, it's that like, if they're looking at medical device design and you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, we almost, we pretty much had to start with a, like a blank clean sheet design for this kind of problem. Yep. But the, the asterisk on that I'd say is that it's a clean sheet with but with some very specific sort of de design criteria that you're thinking right. of designing for manufacturability and right. so that we do have um a down selection um it, it reduces your sort of search space which is really yeah. helpful too to, to be able to come up with a new type of medical device and so i'm curious then um given that you're hitting targets on like reliability durability um shelf life and affordability uh, how, how have you considered not just, you know, working with the FDA, of course, for, say, the, the United States market, but also in some of the perhaps lesser developed or less mature medical ecosystems around the world. Are, are there because I know I've talked with medical device companies that are like, well, we're going to test it in somewhere else and get a lot more sort of clinical numbers um, yep. earlier there and then come back to the FDA. In terms of sort of our strategic vision there, it's a little bit different from I'd say a more typical med device space where, you know, that is sort of an option. And, and the reason I say that is the first place we looked at for a number of reasons, you know, not only because it was the first introduction into auto injectors, but the first place we looked is epinephrine, right? And there are, and so there are a number of reasons why we're talking about the United States first. So one of them is, um, the actual regulatory process to get an approval for an epinephrine combination product is a little bit more streamlined um, than just a typical combination product. And that's because the FDA sort of understands and knows 
about some of these existing issues and wants to see more competition. It helps with innovation around the device, the functionality around the device. It also helps with affordability, you know, with with additional players in the space. So I think there is uh, some pressure to see, um, especially based on sort of the you know the media coverage, the political pressure. There's there's definitely pressure to see new devices in this space, and I think that's why we have started to see new devices in this space, as well as you know potential new incumbents like us coming coming into the space. Um, and then the other, the other piece of that is the market. So, you know, the United States today is in the vast majority, the, you know, epinephrine auto injector market. Um, and so we're, we're pairing, you know, our pathway to approve where the pathway to approval with post approval revenue generation capability in making our decision for, uh, FDA us market first, as we and look is at that other because just the we and there's people in the United States have more allergies or is it uh, these these products sell for more like why why is the US the biggest market yeah so there there are definitely different factors there so some of it is uh, awareness the actual prescriptions the prescriptions are growing at about eight percent annually um, and that that really is based on sort of an a a uh, awareness of these of these uh, allergies, and you know, even if you're not an individual who's that five minute uh, fatal individual, and you still have some allergic reaction to it, oftentimes you'll still be prescribed an, an injector. And so, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, we don't know how these allergies are be progressed. Uh, if you're stung by a bee one day and you're fine. Um, or, or you're, you're having an allergy, but you're, you're okay. And you can work through it with some Benadryl, for example, that doesn't mean that, you know, a month later, it's going to be that same process. And so, you know, there, there's that thought process there. And then, um, you know, one of the other big allergens that we talk about is allergens to medication. And we, we have a, an elderly population as well, that takes a lot of new medication and, and a lot of medication in general. And, those individuals are also often susceptible to uh, severe allergic reactions with their with their medication. As as we come to the to the top of our time together, um, Connor, this, this is really you've been through a lot in this process. Is there some advice that you'd have for the past you? You know, uh, um, the, uh, the up and coming engineer who's who's just not like I I think I might try to build a med- medical device and save lives. What advice yeah. would you have to that person? Yeah, that's a really great question. So I think in general, some of the things that I did that were, I think, most helpful for me that, you know, it, it, which is advice that I would give is, you know, first of all, be patient. You know, these things take a lot of time and, you know, um, just getting the design done and, and getting, you know, uh, reduced to practice. That's only the beginning. And, and we've talked a lot about that. I, so I think you know, be patient is one. Uh, another is surround yourself with people that can help make the barriers to, um, to the finish line lower, right? So if you can pair yourself up with somebody who's gone through this process before, or, you know, um, you know, has been through the FDA process before, whether it's with a combination product or not, or, um, you know, has experience working with a lot of these larger pharmaceuticals, right? You know, all of that type of, um, of experience is really useful. And I think one of the things that we struggled with early on was, you know, hey, we've got a great new device, but we're going up against, you know, what is a, a thriving industry where there are a lot of large players who are trying to you know, hold on to or grow market share. And we need to be able to play in that space. And, you know, it's going to be it. We need a lot of uh, power in our corner to do that. So I think I think that was, you know, something that I would I would always say to somebody who's getting into space is, you know, do your best to, you know, reach out to people who you think, you know, will will be really interested in what you're doing, want to help you and can be effective in sort of reducing the bar that it takes to to get to to the finish line. One question or comment is that um, I understand this is a topic shift. Um, Connor, I understand that you have a, uh, a publication coming out, the Encyclopedia of Bioastronautics. Is that right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> what well, what it, is that? Bioastronautics. Explain like I'm five. What is, what is that? <laughs> sure. So um, 
So, yeah, so I guess I'll go back a little bit more and kind of just give you guys a little bit of a sort of more of a story of my background, because I think that'll that'll address what that uh, is and why it's important to me. Um, so I grew up in southern New Hampshire, uh, right next to a grass strip airfield. Uh, my window was looking at the airplanes go by all day. So I really was into into aviation. I wanted to be a pilot. I started by flying, you know, little RC planes and eventually went on to get my pilot's license. And uh, my undergrad degree was in aeronautical engineering. So, you know, basically the basis of mechanical engineering, but you're really applying that to, you know, the development of, of, um, of flight hardware and, and, um, and planes in general, right? So that was a lot of fun. And Interestingly enough, when I was in undergrad, uh, this was at Clarkson University in upstate New York. Um, I uh, I also added a minor in biomedical engineering. I was really interested in the medicine side as well. I worked on a um, vibrotactile feedback system for lower limb prosthetics. You know, I was always really interested in that combination of taking um, the human body and medicine and, and combining that with engineering and um, and during that period, I started to think, hey, you know, maybe I want to go to medical school um, and become a physician. But after getting involved in a lot of these projects in undergrad, these engineering projects, I was like, you know, heck, these, this engineering is way too fun. I want to stick with this. So I ended up going after a PhD. And I basically settled on what I found to be the perfect PhD program, which was um, it's called the Health Sciences and Technology Program. It's a joint MIT and Harvard Medical School program where essentially you're doing just that. You're combining engineering with medicine. Uh, it, it actually came out of a conversation with MIT boosters who wanted MIT to start a medical school. And MIT basically went through some analysis and said, hey, you know, we've got Harvard Medical School right down the street. Rather than starting our own, let's just collaborate. And the thought process behind HST was rather than taking physicians and trying to teach them to think like an engineer so that they can solve problems in the clinical setting, they took engineers and showed them the clinical setting and brought them into that world and, and allowed them to you know, continue to think like an engineer and solve problems, but understand that clinical setting so that you know what they're developing didn't go to the clinical setting and then just become obsolete because they didn't really understand that process. So it was really the marriage of the two, which really fell into what I was doing. But um, as part of that program, you, you're able to choose a concentration. My concentration was, of course, aeronautics and astronautics. So uh, I, was, I was in the aero-astro program at MIT. Um, and then within the HST program, Health Science and Technology, there are two specialized training programs. One's in bioimaging. The other was what they call this bioastronautics training program, which is uh, going sort of deeper from aeroastro. It's the um, it's basically the human body in space. So my expertise after my PhD and the work that I had done there was uh, really on anything that can ha happen and does happen to the human body in space. Uh, so I really was able to pull all that like love for aviation, aerospace as well as medicine together at the right time. And actually, uh, you know, one of my clinical rotations was with the flight surgeons at NASA. Um, and I, I was able to do sort of a lot of really fun things during that period that, uh, you know, it, it was just a blast. Got to work with the spacesuits. That was what my thesis was on, uh, sort of development of spacesuits, which was really that close marriage of the human body, medicine, and, and technology on the engineering side. So, um, it's been a lot of fun, but yeah, one of the things that I worked on while I was as part of, while I was part of that program was uh, the Encyclopedia of Bioastronautics, which was basically um, an opportunity for me to work with one of the professors at M MIT, Larry Young, uh, as well as with the uh, National Space Biomedical Research Institute to uh, and Springer, who who's publishing this this um, this work, as well as all the SMEs, right, the subject matter experts in these space spaces and, um, you know, talk to them on a daily, weekly basis, take their knowledge integrated into this, into this work, you know, and, and that was probably one of the best experiences I had, you know, having the ability to interface with all of these amazing people who were the experts at the top of their field in bioastronautics, which I had 
you know, just got my degree in and, um, and, and help put this work together. So, uh, yeah, it's very exciting. Well, that's, that's so cool. Let's hope that, uh, maybe eventually close the loop and be able to send some of, uh, Pruette Medical's, uh, you know, medical devices up into space. Um, because even though there might not be as many bumblebees up there, there may right. be, uh, I mean, it's an it's, adverse It's got the adhesive really. though, so it'll work yeah. in space, right? It, it will. And the other you thing is, you know, stick it on. um, we're talking about epinephrine first, but there are, there are obviously other applications that would, um, be very well suited to an easy to use and portable injection system. And, um, yeah, you know, I think, you know, mentioning, for example, space, there is a great way to, uh, to sort of wrap that all up into one and say, there's plenty of other places that a technology like this can go as we think about, you know, how do we expand beyond epinephrine? How do we expand beyond the United States? And maybe how do we expand beyond the world? (laughs) Well, that wraps it up for our episode. Thank you very much for joining us today, Connor. Thank you, Connor. I'm Connor Cullinane, and I'm one of the co-founders and CEO of Pirouette Medical. Stay tough.